Good morning and welcome. We are continuing in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to pick up our reading in verse 17. While you're going there, just want to let you know that uh, uh, next week I will be in Russia. And I'll be in St. Peter's, Russia, uh, ministering to some of the churches that we've started over there over the last 10, 15 years. And so uh, Jeff is going to be here. You saw him in the video. He's going to be sharing on Sunday morning and particularly talking about what God is doing through our church in reaching the youth of our neighborhood and our community. Kind of excited about what he's going to share, and I think you'll find it a real blessing. Uh, Mother's Day, uh, note to self, won't be here, uh, but um, um, most importantly, uh, my son Ben is going to be here sharing on that Sunday, so invite you to come and hear him as well. And of course, this Wednesday, we're looking at the book of First John. I will be here, but uh, the next two Sundays, not an excuse not to attend church. You know, it's amazing. God seems to be able to speak through other people. I was even shocked, but so anyway, but thoughts fair notice so you know what's going on. Uh, if you can, are able to and are comfortable enough, so would you stand with me as we read through this passage beginning in verse 17? where Paul talks about our new future in Christ. He says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bring this passage to life in our hearts and our minds. We pray that your word would be able to work its way into the cracks and the crevices of our day-to-day lives, Lord, and not only bring healing, but bring life and hope and power and grace that we might enjoy you every moment of every day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've traveled with us through our study of Romans, we've seen how that Paul has led us on a journey from what I would call the pathetic and patronizing pits of sin that tend to mire and entrap every person on the planet to the lofty pinnacles of God's grace, a grace that we're told is so undeserved. In fact, one commentator put it, a grace without assignable cause towards entirely unworthy objects. And yet it is given to us freely, it is given to us generously, even if it's given inexplicably. With this grace there came, as we studied, a new peace. We have peace with God because we have the peace of God that is available to us that there is no longer a, a division between us and God, but we have become one in Christ. That with that also came this new position. We have been raised to heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we are no longer simply struggling humanity, but we are people of a divine destiny. We have a divine nobility as the sons of God, as His children. And last week we talked about how that not only that, He has given us a new power, that no longer is living the Christian life the idea of following rules and regulations to the best of my ability, to the limits of my own willpower and capacity, but I have been possessed by a power that is God Himself living on the inside that enables you and I to live our lives in accordance to His will. But now in chapter 8, as we come to the second half, he talks about yet another dimension that with that new peace and that new position and that new power, there is also, as would be understandable, a new future. And the view of the future is critical to all of us because what we see ahead of us has a powerful influence on how we feel about the moment we're in and how we move towards that future. That if I believe the future is hopeless, 
and that I'm helpless against struggling against uh, forces that I cannot control. I may express it in anger. I may express it in depression. But it really has a very debilitating impact upon the way that I look at my life, not only in the present moment, but in terms of what I think the future holds. But if I believe that my future is a glorious one, a wonderful one, that if I believe that I have am more than a conqueror, as he said, that I'm convinced that I have victory in Christ and my life will result in something powerful and wonderful and sensational and meaningful, then my attitude is hopeful and joyful and confident. And there is a stiffening of the back. There's a straightening of the head. There is a forthrightness that takes over our lives and a fortitude that undergirds us as we confront challenges that are all around us. And that's why when he speaks about our new future as the sons of God, he says we are heirs and we are co-heirs of Christ. To be an heir means that you are given a position, that you are given an authority, that you are given certain properties that become yours simply by act of inheritance. Because God says of us that those he foreknew and that's one of the mysteries of, of heaven is that God knew whether you would receive him or reject him before you were ever thought of in the twinkling of your father's eye. God knew in that moment of your gestation, of your conception, he knew you before that. He knew the choices you would make. He didn't make those choices for you, which is one of the errors I think we drift into sometimes, as if we're automatons who have no control. But nonetheless, he knows those choices. He's foreseen every one of them. And because that, he predestined us. And, and this is where we get kind of weird sometimes. Well, if I'm predestined, I'll just sit around and wait to see what happens. No, predestined means he's predetermined, predesigned you for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, the moment you gave your life to Christ, there was a process that kicked into gears that began shaping and molding you, not necessarily something by your observance or even by your effort and energy, but God began to move the universe. It began to conspire with you instead of conspiring against you. It began to conspire with God and with you to move you into a place where Little by little, maybe incrementally, God began to reshape the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, that even the very choices and desires and appetites of your life began to change. That mystery of godliness, that God began to work because those he knew that he had chosen, he says he called them. He invited them to trust in them and he justified them and declared them free from sin. And he ultimately says the goal is to glorify you. So that when I look at my life in this present world, there are many, many inglorious moments. But God says, but that's not the end of the story. There may be an inglorious moment right now, but what I have set before you ultimately is that you will stand before my divine presence and be glorified. Now, some people say, dismiss that by saying, well, that's pie in the sky stuff. What you have to understand is that the pie in the sky is eternal. It lasts forever. 
that we wrestle with our moment of time and we make this brief tenure that we have here upon this planet, this short sojourn that we call life on earth that's bookended by birth and death. We look at this as if it is the be-all and the have-all, but the reality is it is just a moment. It's a brevity that appears for a moment and then passes away. Many of us know that truth so much better than others. But there is something else, and that is called eternity. This thing, this eternal thing that is forever and ever and ever, so that if you are a good businessman, if you're a good calculator of measurements, you look at time and you look at eternity, and hopefully you can see very clearly that eternity has a much greater magnitude. It is a much better investment of your life than time is, because there's a certain, as we'll see, futility about our life here upon the planet. But when we look at what Christ did, we can simply say that truly His pain became our gain. He suffered that we might inherit all of the promises and the blessings of God. But He didn't. But basically, as I read this, I wish Paul had stopped right here. But he doesn't. In fact, he adds to it that we are heirs if, if that conditional conjunction. Now, I would just say from a theological point of view that Paul only uses the word if, this conditional conjunction, in the context of discipleship, not salvation. That my salvation is not conditioned upon my behavior, but discipleship is. That if, if I share in his sufferings, then I know that I will be glorified with Him. Now, the way I want Scripture to read, I've put it in my Bible so I can get around this, is He suffered so I won't have to. But instead, Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our suffering is not the means to the glory, but the path that God takes us, that path of grace, does involve suffering because it leads us ultimately to the land where pain will be unknown. But even when we talk about the life of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews added in Hebrews 5.8, he said, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That even Christ, he said, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Though it's always unwelcome, suffering is not new or unique. Even the ancients noted that suffering is the constant companion of the living, we all know about broken promises, broken hearts, broken relationships, broken health, broken lives. In fact, we find that Job said in 14.1 of his book, he says, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Now, some of you are younger enough to question that. There are others of us who have had enough decades on this planet that we know that the days are few. And they often are full of trouble, despite what the politicians promise. <laughs> Psalm 89, 47 reads, Remember how fleeting my life is, for what futility you have created all men. <laughs> 
Or in Ecclesiastes 1.14, I mean, he says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless. Not that they're not fun, distracting, entertaining, but when you really get down to it, what does it mean? as I'm sitting there playing my video games on my phone or my iPad, and I get these amazing scores, and I move from level to level, every once in a while, I have to ask myself, what does it really mean? <laughs> Do you care how many times I've won solitaire? Do you really? I mean, you know, I've tried to make money off of that, and it hasn't worked. It doesn't really mean anything in the greater accomplishment, even if you rise to the top of your career, it doesn't really mean anything in terms of everything because he says in the end it just becomes a chasing after the wind. Because he goes on to say, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. We live in an information age where we know so much. Does it make you happier? In fact, he says, the more knowledge, the more grief. What I know is there are so many more things wrong in this world than I had ever imagined, that my parents ever heard of, so that I know every tragedy that transpires in just about every place on the planet. And it doesn't make me happier to know that. It may have some positive impacts in terms of social justice and responsibility and giving to the poor and responding to the suffering, but in the end of the day, it doesn't make me happier. In fact, there's a certain futility in it. As Jesus simply said in John 16, to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. You will have trouble. And it's an amazing how much effort we put into it because suffering and its accompanying sadness is found everywhere despite our constant effort to avoid it or to inure ourselves against it. Disaster, destruction, disease, and death will always be part of the human condition. And contrary to the teachings of some, Christians are not exempt. Why not? This is probably the most amazing statement that Paul makes in this passage because it's God's will. When he says, for the creation, I mean, that means everything in the material world that we look at, living and, and in, uh, uh, non-organic, is subject to frustration or futility and meaningless. Why? By the will of the one who subjected it. And he goes on to describe what it is, this frustration. It's this frustration because of bondage and decay and because of waiting and groaning and weakness, which are part of every human's experience and the condition of us all. In short, suffering, he's telling us, and is an integral part of life. As David Roper said, because sorrow is the means to the end of all things, especially God Himself. So the question people ask is, why would a loving God allow so much evil in the world? Well, first of all, we have to understand the injection of evil is a consequence of our own choices. God is not the author of evil. But why does God allow it to proliferate and it's to convince us of one simple fact, 
this is not heaven. This is not the end of the journey. This is not where the answer to the real questions of life are found. And there is an illusion that men continue to pursue, I think, because they don't know what else to do. But they're always pursuing this goal of somehow fixing the world so it will no longer be a problem, problematic place. And all I can say is, how is that working out for you? So despite the politicians' promises, despite the efforts of the United Nations, and on and on it goes with treaties and accords and all the stuff that happens in the world, the world tends to continue to be a broken and breaking and falling apart place because that is the very inherent nature of it, the very laws of nature, the law of thermodynamics, that everything goes from a state of order to disorder is proven 24-7, 365 days out of the year, including the face and the mirror that you deal with on a regular, ongoing basis. Someone once said, and I can certainly testify, I feel pain in places that I didn't even know I had when I was 25. When I was 25, I sprung out of bed in the morning. At 66, I roll onto the floor and I crawl towards the shower <laughs> and turn on the hot water and command the blood to circulate to the places it stopped through the night. So I run regularly and I pay for it consistently. There are really kind of two kinds of suffering in the world that Paul describes here. I mean, it's kind of suggested or implied by this passage. There's the normal suffering that everyone experiences, a suffering that is, first of all, eventual. In Hebrews 9, 27, he says, man is destined to die. That word destined literally means there's a reservation with your name on it. It's an appointment on your calendar. That's the destination that you are going to reach regardless of whether or not you want to. It's, it's not really a choice that is available to you. So that it's something that is, there's an eventuality to suffering that as much as we may try to structure our lives to prevent ourselves from ever having to go through any hardship or loss or disappointment, it's going to happen. You know it is, which is kind of amazing because we pretend and we try to coax ourselves into thinking, well, that will never happen to me because I will not give it permission. And that's one of the things I remember a man saying to me one time, my kids don't have permission to embarrass me. And I said, they're not going to ask for permission. <laughs> they're just going to do it all on their own. I mean, it's, and it's, it's like that. Suffering is like that. It doesn't ask to be present. It just comes. But secondly, it is unavoidable despite the promises that may be made to us. In fact, Solomon said, the wise man, the fool, the same fate overtakes them both. So there's an illusion that if you are wise and clever and you structure it just right, you can negotiate your future in a way that you will be free from any harm. And yet how many people faithfully prepared for their retirements and saw their 401k go to a 101k in a millisecond of time? And it is unfair. It's eventual. It's unavoidable. It is unfair. 
Solomon said in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. The most talented, the best and the brightest don't always win. In fact, he goes on to say, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. There's a randomness to it. Warren Buffett talked about hunger in the world, and he called some people are the winners of the ovarian lottery. They just happen to be born in the right place to the right parents. Some of us in this room can speak about that kind of unfairness. You happen to be born into circumstances that have really made the journey much harder for you. Others have this conceit that somehow they are more brilliant or talented when in fact you just were fortunate to be born with the parents and the income and the position and the influence that came your way. It's eventual, it's unavoidable, it's unfair, and it's unforeseen. Solomon continued by saying, Moreover, no man knows when the hour will come. Men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly. Now, the non-Christian attempts to inject meaning into this kind of random and unfair suffering. And they say things like, well, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, which overlooks a very obvious point. One day it will kill you. I think about people saying, I just love nature. I said, go out there with no clothes and you'll find out it's trying to kill you. (laughs) What's that TV show, Naked and Afraid? I think the most fearful thing is being naked. But secondly, why in the right, even in the right mind would go into the wilderness without clothes? <laughs> My luck is that instead of taking a fire starter, I take hot sauce. Anyway, <laughs> depends on what you think is necessary for survival. But for the Christian, there is a secondary dynamic, that it's not so much that the suffering is different, but in Christ, suddenly my suffering becomes redemptive. That's why Paul said the eager expectation of the sons of God is to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God who wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. In other words, Paul's saying, unlike normal suffering, this is a suffering that has a purpose, a meaning behind it, that the suffering makes itself purposeful. Because he says, in this hope we know that all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Now, there's a caveat here, isn't there? I know that everything that's happening in my life is good in terms of its consequence in my life. The thing itself may not be good, but it is good. But it's dependent upon two things. One, that I love God and that I'm responding to His purpose or His will, His plan for my life. In other words, if I am the clay that is yielding to the hand of the potter, then He uses those circumstances, He uses those large, rough hands that He has to 
press and to push and to mold and to shape me into something that serves his purpose. And if I'm okay with that, then I can sit back and say, I am good with what God is doing. Because when I got cancer, my cancer was not good, but what it worked in me was. And until you have that journey, you don't understand it. Because when you come to the end of the day and there really is nothing that you can kind of find worth living for, you discover that that's where God is found most perfectly in your life. That you say along with the psalmist, who have I on earth but you? Who have I in heaven but you? Suddenly, that intimacy with God becomes not theoretical, not religious, not just something verbal or read someplace. It becomes palpable. It touches you. It envelops you. God becomes all in all. And ultimately, that's the goal of suffering. In the life of the believer, it is designed to bring us to a place where we're no longer clinging to earth, but rather we cling to Him. And that's when we know that it works for good. Suffering as a disciple or follower of Jesus is, is unique when you are a true believer in the sense that Jesus said, He implied that it was going to come when He said in places like Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, He says, wide or easy is the door which goes to destruction and great numbers go in by it. But then He adds, narrow is the door and He says, hard to the road to life is the road to life and only a small number make discovery of it. That once I make that decision that I'm going to follow God, there is a hardship that's incumbent in that change of direction. That we all understand this dynamic in a physical, material world. We, we realize that a road may path, and, and one pathway says, this is smooth, easy sailing, speed limit 75, if you care. The other one, 15 mile an hour through hard road. And there are times in your life and in my life where we feel like we went down that road and we went down that road not sitting in the seat. We went down that road with a chain around our ankles dragging us behind the pickup the entire way. And we sit there and say, God, why? And the answer is there's something that gets peeled off of us in the process that needed to go. And in the nakedness of that moment, there's this awareness that I've experienced God in a place where I never thought I'd find Him. That's why Paul said to Timothy, he says that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. If you decide that you're going to be godly or God-focused in your life, that you're going to pursue Him, there's going to be a suffering that's going to accomplish that because the flesh, the, the human nature does not want to have to go through those kind of difficulties. It doesn't want to have to make those hard decisions. Peter said, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Rejoice, he said, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings so that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad 
with exceeding joy. You see, Solomon put it so simply when he said in Proverbs 19.21, he said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. So that I may have all sorts of plans and designs and ideas of what should come in the future, but in the end of the day, God decides. I mean, think about it for a moment. How many times have you planned ahead for something, and in the aftermath, have you ever looked back and say, how close did the event line up with my plans? I mean, my life is filled with the unexpected, from little things to big things. So that as I was working on a project in my yard last night, and, and it, it, it would look great outside, and then suddenly as I'm sitting down in the well, window well of my basement window, and I'm being deluged by water, and I'm dripping wet, this isn't what I planned. I didn't bring electri- electronic equipment down here to be electrocuted. I mean, there's things you just don't plan. It happens all the time, every day. You have plans today. In fact, you are planning when you leave this service to do certain things. And there's a huge likelihood that it's not going to turn out exactly as you planned. As I was renting a car one time and the gentleman said, well, do you want this additional insurance coverage? And I very jokingly said to him, well, I'm not planning on having an accident. And he said, that's why we call it an accident. (laughs) I still didn't pay for it, but nonetheless. But life is filled with accidental things. There's filled with unplanned things. And some of them are minor irritants and some of them are devastating losses. So much so that it's hard to find other people who understand them. In fact, I have found in my life that sometimes those losses can be so deep that not only is there no one that you can talk to about them, but if you could, they wouldn't really understand it. Where do you go? And that's where you discover that God can go deeper than even we ourselves can go. That's when Jonah would say, I went into the belly of the earth and you were there. And at that moment, when you discover God at the worst of times, you begin to understand why He allows us to live in a world that has the worst of times. Because it's all about Him, finding Him. Redemptive suffering produces some things in us. And the first one is is just really endurance. We, we become enduring people. I love what F.B. Myers said once. He said, our greatest victories are wrought through pain purchased at the cost of the humbling of the flesh. You see, suffering makes it impossible for us to be either ambivalent or forever resistant to the will of God. And it's that ambivalence or that resistance that keeps us from experiencing what God has. And yet when we go through that season, that becomes the moments of our greatest defeats and also, ironically, it's our greatest victories. It persuades us to forsake 
our efforts to transform this present world into our private playground or, or our palatial residence. And instead, it sets us off in the pursuit to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Do you understand how critically important it is to God that the transforming work of the Holy Spirit conforming you to be increasingly like Jesus is to the heart of God? He was the firstborn, Paul said, that He might be the firstborn of many sons. That's why Oswald Chambers said, salvation is the work of God our work is disciples others until they are totally yielded to God. Jesus didn't say go into the world and save souls. He said preach the gospel. I'll save them if you preach it. But then he says make them disciples. Teach them how to increasingly conform their life to the will of God, to what God wants for them. That when they bump up against life, that what oozes out of them is Christ-likeness. They deal with life the way Jesus would deal with life. That when deep hurts and offenses come, they don't become angry, they don't become bitter, they don't become resentful, they don't become hateful. They don't do what people do when bad things happen to good people. Instead, they respond with love and forgiveness and kindness and graciousness. That they don't spend their life worrying about being taken advantage of but rather they perpetually put themselves in that position that God might be able to spend himself through them. That he said in verse 25 that what it creates is we hope for what we do not yet have and we wait for it patiently. That's called hopeful endurance. We live our lives of those who are enduring because we have a greater hope. And when I talk about hope, or the Bible talks about hope, it isn't talking about a wishful thinking. It's talking about a confidence with regards to the future. That I, I, I have this hopeful endurance because I am enduring because I know at the end what the future holds. It's like a person who first time tries to run a marathon and they wonder, can I do it? And they run and they run and when they finally cross the 26-mile line, they look back and go, I hoped and I was confident, but there was such a thrill when I crossed the line and I actually did it. But secondly, there's an empowerment that comes. Uh, it was Augustine who said, the best disposition for praying is that of being desolate, forsaken and stripped of everything. Hallelujah. Desolate, forsaken, and stripped of everything. How many of us could honestly say, lead me there, Lord? <laughs> In fact, we're doing everything that we can do to push it away and keep it out of my life. Don't let that happen to me, God. And yet, 
Augustine said, when we come to that place in our life, there is a certain empowerment. In fact, he describes it in verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That when I get down on my knees before God and I say, God, I'm coming to you in my weakness. I'm coming to you in my powerlessness. I don't know what to do. I have nothing to throw against this. There is an empowerment. The Spirit, he says, comes upon us and moves through those times in our lives. He goes on to say, we do not know what we ought to pray for. How many times have you been there? God, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why this is happening in my life. I don't know where to go with my emotions. But God, I'm just here. And in that moment, he says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Those moments when you're just saying, God, I have just grief. I have no words. And we groan in the inside. He says, we sit back and say, I hope I phrased that properly so he'll answer. When God simply says, the Spirit hears the pain of your heart and he delivers that in heavenly language with a beauty and an eloquence and a grandeur that we wouldn't even understand if we could actually hear it. But it has one particular characteristic. He said, in accordance with God's will. It's all about what God wants to accomplish. God wants to conform you to the image of His Son. God wants to fulfill His will in your life. That's why God brings those external pressures in my life that squeeze me in and constrict my view. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains. It compels. It compels us to move in a certain way, in a certain direction. But finally, not only does it make me strong and make me a hopeful, enduring believer, and not only does it empower me in ways that I never would have thought, that my weakness would be the very source of God's greatest power in my life, so that I need no longer fear being weak, but I can actually run and race to tell Him of my weakness. He says, thirdly, it convinces us, I am convinced. What am I convinced of? I am convinced of the goodness of God's plan and purpose for my life. That I look at the, the ugliest situations and circumstances in my life and say, you know, I never would have chosen this in a million, million years, but God, I embrace it because I know that you're going to glorify yourself through this. Something amazing is going to happen in my life because of what you've allowed me to suffer. Because he says again, as we said earlier in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. To what? To glorify them through the work that he was going to do in their life. He has predestined you to be glorified. Predestined you to be glorified. Do you believe that? Because if you do, something happens on the inside. But you realize the moment I gave my life to Christ, I entered into a closed system. 
I entered a closed system. I was sealed in him for eternity. And the moment I believed him and the process of suddenly conforming me and bringing me to ultimate glory started and waits only to be fulfilled in the day that I leave this body and go to be with him. If you believe that, you smile a lot. If you don't believe that, you frown a lot. Because he says in verse 31, this is his conclusion. He says, as we look at this reality, as we begin to grasp this truth in our life, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he adds, he says, he who did not spare his own son, he was willing to give his own son to accomplish this work in your life, but gave himself up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's given you the very best that he has. What makes you think he would withhold anything else? As a grandfather, I'm, I'm beginning to get this a lot. When my granddaughter called the other day and told us what is the most important thing in her life at this particular moment in time, my wife and I began to conspire how we can buy it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, just in, it's, it's instinctive, you know? It's like, oh yeah. Just to see that moment of We're hungry for, for those hugs and kisses, you know. How much more God yearns over you. He says, who will, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Well, I tell you who will bring charges against you. Satan will. He'll talk about what a loser you are, what a failure you are, how incompetent you are, how unspiritual you are, how you, there you go, doing it again. He'll, he'll bring those things, but he says you have to understand it doesn't stand because God is already and continues to justify you. So that as the enemy comes and rails against you, Jesus steps in front of the Father and says, I paid the price. That's already covered. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ Jesus at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. I love it when you pray for me, but I really like it that Jesus is praying for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? That kind of covers most bad things that can happen in your life. No, he says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Now, I've never been a conqueror, so I don't know what being more than a conqueror means, but it's more, and I'm good with more. Give me more. I think it was Paul's way of saying, we have no concept, can't even comprehend how much is accomplished by your simple day-to-day -day struggle that seems just a quiet, meaningless thing in some corner of your world that nobody will ever notice, but God notices it, and it accrues to your reward and your blessing. 
You see, sometimes I think the greatest battles are the ones that are about just not complaining, not criticizing, not faulting, overlooking a slight or a fault where we just simply bite our tongue and hold our lip and we pray, God, give me grace to forgive, give me grace to love. Nobody hears it, nobody even notices it, certainly they don't comment on it, but God looks from heaven and goes, it's working. You're becoming like my son every day because he went like a lamb to the slaughter and never said anything, never a critical word. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, in fact, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's your future. That's your future. See, I don't know the details about the future, but I know him who not only holds the details, but controls the details. I know that he has it in control, and I can trust him. So that I don't know necessarily what's going to happen. I think every time I, you know, walk onto an uh, aluminum tube that is made of a million parts put together by the lowest bidder, and have massive engines thrusting that thing in the air at 600 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. You know, I, I get on there with the assumption that I will get off of it in the, uh, by, by, the, by the skyway, sky bridge. But it doesn't always happen, does it? I think when Prince stepped into that elevator in his home the other day, I doubt he was anticipating this would be the place of his death or the last moment of his life. None of us anticipates these things. They overtake us in the journey, do they not? And if I live my life trying to avoid those moments, I'll eat only kale, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like... I eat kale because it's what my wife puts in front of me. But nobody in their right mind would actually go into the field and cut that stuff and eat it unless you're a cow. The whole point is we do all these things because we're trying to avoid the future. When I was reading the other day an article, it said that people who eat bacon have higher levels of stomach cancer. I kind of weighed out the, the consequences. <laughs> Happy or healthy? Which one? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll eat some more bacon and think about it. <laughs> Wrap my kale and bacon. There you go. <laughs> it would ruin the bacon. Uh, but understand that God says, I have your future. I have it wrapped in my hands. 
That doesn't mean that we live irresponsibly or frivolously because that's part of the discipline process. Part of what God is trying to work is to keep you from being undisciplined and frivolous, but not because that will control your future, but rather because it will control your heart and bring you into focus that you might stop trying to make the world that you live in your playground or trying to build your palatial residence here upon the earth that will never fail, but instead you'll live your life for Him. Father, I pray that you would give us ears and hearts that can hear these things and process them and, and, and turn them into living realities that are operative in every one of us every day. Lord, I don't want to get up here and pretend like this is always easy for me. In fact, how often, Lord, there is a battle that wages, as we've talked about in the past. But one thing I know, Lord, is I've never regretted choosing Jesus. I've never regretted that choice. I've often sorrowed and regretted in not making that choice and following my own appetites and instincts and rather following your word and your truth. But Lord, I pray that even then we would not allow the enemy to condemn us, to charge us, to accuse us, to try to separate us. But God, we would understand the moment we asked Jesus into our heart, we entered into a closed system that is designed for one thing, and that is to conform us to the image of your Son, that we might be glorified as heirs and co-heirs of God. Do this work. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on, I invite you to partake of the elements of communion if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to meet him and to ask Jesus into your heart to make that step of initial surrender of, the, of your life, not just the moment we're in right now, but your lifetime. Too often I've prayed that we talk about giving your life to Christ as if it's you know, kind of a one-off thing and then you can go on to whatever else you have on your agenda. The bucket list is being checked off. Well, in fact, when you check Jesus on your bucket list, that's the end of the bucket list. It's no longer a life of your design. It's no longer life defined by your accomplishments. It's a life that simply says, Lord Jesus, here's my life and, and do with it as you please. Your will be done. And I think it's important that we make that clear to people because we can have a hundred converts but only end up with one disciple. Jesus is calling you to know him and if you know him, you will follow him. So if you don't know him, we invite you to come. There'll be those of us up in front who'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe you came with a family member or a friend. You can talk to them about this or maybe you're one who's here because you kind of lost your way somewhere. You got overwhelmed by the, the sour, sadness of life and you just kind of gotten lost it's a great time to come back to the purpose for which you were created and allow God to reveal that he causes all things to work together for good even the really terrible things he actually does bring good out of it don't ask me how because I don't know most of the time at least not right away 
It usually comes when down the road we look at our life and go, I don't know why God allowed this to happen, but it's changed me for the good. If nothing more, we begin to have our hearts broken in ways that make us more compassionate and understanding people. Just like Jesus. So respond.